Hello and welcome to the Oxfam podcast. My name is Amy Moran and I'm a digital communications manager for Oxfam's policy and practice website. Today we're talking about an exciting new report on desalination solutions and the challenges we face in implementing them at a community scale, particularly from an international development perspective. With me I have uh, Tom Wildman. He's the lead on sustainable market development for WASH at Oxfam and who also led on the commissioning of this report from the University of California at Berkeley. And with Tom, we have the researchers behind the report joining us all the way from California. So we have Chinmayi Suban, a research scientist working on new materials and methods for brackish water treatment, and Kate Bowden, a research and development engineer who primarily works on arsenic removal solutions from water and rice. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Tom, I'm going to start with you. So we're talking about desalination solutions, which essentially is salt and water. But can you give us a brief overview before we go into the report about what's happening with salt water in the world system and why is this a problem? Sure. So when we first commissioned this report, we were looking at how to provide solutions in places where Oxfam's currently working in Asia. We're experiencing increasing problems with water quality in terms of saline intrusion into freshwater supplies. A lot of that's caused by sea level rise, caused by climate change. Currently in Vietnam, in the Mekong River Delta, over 6 million people are affected by saline water sources. And what that means is Rice crops and rice harvests are actually being destroyed. That's what happened in the 2016 drought that hit the region. And in some places, people don't have fresh water for drinking, and they have to resort to purchasing bottled water or buying it from trucks that actually bring in water from 60 or 70 kilometers away. There are solutions for desalinating saline water However, most of them that we've seen in the Asia region are very large-scale systems that are extremely expensive to run. They get put in at the level of, let's say, Singapore to provide fresh water. And is this this the biggest challenge you're facing when it comes to working in inland areas in particular? Yes. So one of the big struggles for us was we weren't looking at for – solutions which could desalinate vast quantities of seawater. We're looking for smaller scale systems that can provide five or 10,000 liters of fresh water per day and can be run at more of a local village level. Very quickly, what's the scale of this problem? And you know, why should an NGO like Oxfam be worried about this and involved with this? Many of the people that we work with uh, across the Asia region and globally are affected by this problem, and it's forecast to just get worse with sea level rise. So um, if you look at Vietnam, over 6 million people in the Mekong Delta affected by saline groundwater. Almost the entire southern coastal belt of Bangladesh is affected by this, and it's destroying people's livelihoods. Uh, by making agriculture very difficult. And the result is that people increasingly have to pay more and more money to buy things like bottled water, or they're forced to go and take water from unsafe sources like like ponds. And the problem is only going to get worse, isn't it? That's the forecast, correct. That's the forecast. Okay, thanks, Tom. Yeah, that's, that's a good background to, to what we're facing here. 
Jimmy, could you give us a brief overview of the process of desalination for those who might not know anything about it and the basics of how it works? Desalination generally involves taking a saline source and inputting some form of energy, and the energy is used to separate the salt from the water, and then eventually you end up with two outputs. One is a salt-free fresh water, and the other is where all the salt is collected and concentrated, and which we call the brine, and it's the waste stream. Generally, when we evaluate technologies for desalination, there are two metrics we really care about. One is minimizing the amount of energy it takes to separate the salt from water. And two is the amount of fresh water for every given liter of salt water that we put through the system that we can produce. So this we refer to as water recovery. So we want to minimize the energy input and maximize the fresh water recovery for a given technology. And often when we think about desalination, we're thinking about seawater. But turns out there's a lot of different range of salinities for waters that uh, need to be desalinated prior to human use. Just to put it in context, for example, uh, seawater contains about 35 grams of salt for every liter of water. While drinking water, permissible limit of salt in drinking water is about half a gram per liter of water, according to the World Health Organization. But there's a lot of water sources that have varying range of salinity between potable water and seawater. Tom, I'm just going to bring you back in just to give us a bit of a background about why Oxfam commissioned this report, what the point, what the goal of the report was, and then I'll come to you, Kate and Shumay, again to talk a bit more about the actual findings. Well, as I said earlier, this is becoming a really pressing need in the areas that we work in, and we realized that we needed to start developing solutions around this. We've been approached by several manufacturers of products uh, to desalinate water, but we felt like we didn't have a good overview of what was out there that was market ready and what was still in the pipeline that maybe we should be waiting for. So we really wanted to develop a roadmap that could provide some tangible guidance, not only to us, but to everyone working in the water development sector in terms of what are the options available for desalination of water that can actually be implemented sustainably in a developing context. What are the options available? What were the key findings that you got from this report that you think are important to to share with the sector? When we took this on, even though Chinmay and I are both coming from a research perspective, we really wanted to look at, like Tom is saying, things that are commercially available and systems that can be purchased now to actually be implemented in the field. And what we found is reverse osmosis is a commercially mature technology, which gives it a lot of benefits and makes it easily accessible in a variety of places around the world, which also allows replacement parts to be found to be easy to come by. And in terms of what Chinmayi was talking about in the metrics of evaluating different technologies, for a source salinity like seawater with 35 grams per liter, the energy required to remove the salt with reverse osmosis has been optimized really since the 1970s. It's been dropping. And it's at a point where it's close to 
what we would define as the thermodynamic threshold. So it's really the amount of energy that it takes to actually operate a reverse osmosis system for the desalination of seawater is very, very close to as low as you could do physically. And this, this gives it a huge benefit, but it also is specific to the source salinity. So another technology that we would recommend in the field is membrane capacitive deionization. And I'll abbreviate that as MCDI. MCDI works by applying a voltage and pulling out the sodium chloride ions. And so this technology is going to be ideal for low salinity waters and specifically under five grams per liter. Big benefit of this technology is a high water recovery. And we're talking somewhere between 85 and 90%. So for every 10 liters of water that you put in, you get 8.5 or nine liters of fresh water as a result. Okay, so that's really interesting. And did you look at other methods available as well, things that perhaps aren't quite ready but are in the lab stage? Um, was there anything interesting that you found in your findings around that? The focus of the report was looking at what was in the field, but if we take a step back and look at what is in the pipeline, what's being worked on, there is extensive research trying to make reverse osmosis much more efficient and much more robust by looking at how do you make the membranes more robust and how do you uh, reduce the cost and energy use for reverse osmosis. There's also a lot of new materials and chemistries for salt removal that are in early stages of development in the lab. And they include new approaches similar to how lithium is intercalated in batteries. They're trying to do that with salt ions. And another key area of research has been looking at how do you minimize or completely eliminate liquid waste disposal? For How do you make the brine into solid salt? And the approach often is referred to as zero liquid discharge. And it has key benefits because if you're inland, trying to dispose of waste becomes a considerable cost and environmental burden. Okay, so it sounds like reverse osmosis is really the, the one that is the most developed, if I can say that, and the most widely used. And MCDI has a lot of potential to to help us reach more rural areas, inland areas. But I think what I'm wondering is, you know, why isn't there more commercial, and this is a question for everybody, why isn't there a more commercial alternative to reverse osmosis? Why is that the one that's sort of dominating the market, if you will? Often when there is a new technology, there is it starts at a research lab or a university and there is funding for basic science and engineering in the research setting. But often what happens is there is what's known as value of death before um, at which point the technology has to be scaled up and demonstrated in a real world setting. So it's not really a lot of funding for that stage of development um, before a university or a research lab can hand off the technology uh, to industry to commercialize widely. Tom, what, what, what got you excited from the report, from the findings? Was there anything in particular that you really, really want to highlight? I think that as the Oxfam Wash team, we have two big takeaways from this that we like to carry forward. One is that reverse osmosis is a viable option for us in some places. It's something that's frightened us off a little bit over the last few years because of its high running cost. As 
both Kate and Chinmay mentioned, it requires high energy in, inputs, um, which has frequently made it too expensive to operate in places where we work. However, it can be powered by photovoltaics or solar power, and the report highlights numerous examples of that being done successfully. So I think in areas where we're dealing with higher levels of salinity and we can obtain the capital uh, to put in solar-powered reverse osmosis systems and we can put in cost recovery systems that can actually cover uh, the operating costs of these systems, I think that these can be put in in a sustainable, affordable manner. I think that that question's been answered for us now. It's figuring out how, how we do that at scale. The second takeaway is we do have alternative options to reverse osmosis with MCDI being a very exciting one. However, it's very context specific. So it's only for low salinity water and it's not quite as market ready. However, it's quite an intriguing option for us in that it requires significantly less energy inputs to operate, meaning it's significantly cheaper to run. It's also much more efficient in terms of water recovery rates. And what that means is in water-scarce areas, we would waste a lot less water, something that's really critical for us. I think that we'd, we'd like to look for opportunities where we could help to penetrate new markets with what could be a very revolutionary technology, but we need to ensure that we'd have the right partnerships in place and ensure that we don't kind of dump a new technology into a country that's then just bound to fail because the supporting environment is not there to kind of help it uh, operate in a sustainable and viable manner. Uh, and I think um, Tom did an excellent job of uh, explaining the constraints for any given community. So what we do in the report is sort of walk through what are some of the considerations for any given community, whether it's regulations that prevent uh, waste disposal, whether it's the access to capital, the managerial capacity that's locally available. And I think that's something that the two authors did very well on this report, is it provides a very great uh, sort of theoretical background on the different technologies available, and then it systematically breaks down for each one uh, where they are and are not appropriate. Is there enough options on the market or in development that are going to be ready to deal with the scale of this problem? I think one of the key things uh, with new technologies is how willing to take a risk the given community is. And our concern with low-income communities is that they may not have the additional resources to take a risk with an emerging technology. So often being able to demonstrate and 
iterate and develop the technology in a high resource setting where we're not putting their access to safe water at risk, it would be ideal. So I think a lot of funding for early stage technologies to be tested, tried and experimented with would be key in bringing more solutions to the market faster without having to do one-off pilots uh, at the cost of access to safe water in a low-income community. It's an interesting kind of gray zone to be in when a technology has been validated in the lab and the research has been done, the fundamental science has been done to understand how it works, but you have to get it out of that lab setting and deploy it on a scale that can actually influence the lives of people who need these technologies. Yeah, and Tom, it sounds like the role of NGOs like Oxfam in this are pretty important to make sure that things like this, uh, to make sure that these sorts of solutions actually make it to to, to scale. Um, For you, what does this mean for Oxfam in our water programs? And not not just Oxfam, actually, also from a sector perspective. What, What does it mean for us? We need to move beyond just installing water systems. You know, um, it's also looking at how do we stimulate investment in these types of things. I mean, there is there is a huge market for this type of low energy input, low cost desalination. People pay a lot of money for water in areas where they're suffering from saline intrusion. We work in some remote islands in the Philippines where boats bring water in kind of 20 liter buckets and people spend up to 30% of their monthly income buying that that water. No, it sounds like there's a big role that NGOs can play in this to help get these um, get these solutions from the lab on scale, but it also sounds like equally there's a part for private sector, there's a part for government funding, there's a part for the researchers as well to make sure that, as you say, we're not testing it and creating risk for the people who need it the most. I think one of the things that gives me hope in this space is that need for desalination is sort of universal. And it's not a, we're solving a problem for the developing world, but it's a problem that needs to be solved for everyone. So I think there is a higher interest for research from various governments across the world for their own desalination needs, which could then trickle down into being able to help communities across the world. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. It's not an isolated issue. We're talking about it in this podcast from an international development perspective, but it is a global issue and it's going to affect everybody. So as with as is the way with a lot of technologies, when that's the case, you tend to have a bit more um, a bit more urgency behind the development of them. Deciding on a technology when you actually want it to influence a community. And in the case of our report, we're looking at small-scale implementation. So we really focused on 1 to 10 cubic meters of fresh water a day. And in that case, really keeping in mind what what the constraints of the community are, which is something we've talked about a lot throughout this discussion is is essential in terms of is there a, an ample supply of water 
Like if you're on the coast and you have the ocean at your disposal, then something like reverse osmosis is like a no-brainer kind of choice because you can also dispose of the brine. So water recovery, which is one of these metrics that Chinmay mentioned in the beginning, is not as much of an issue. Uh, but in the case of like a small rural community inland, like let's say in the middle of India or an inland community in Vietnam, any of these places where they're talking about groundwater salinity, which is also a, um, a large problem. It's not just that you have saltwater intrusion from the coast, but you also have saline groundwater. And that can be remedied with, some, with a simpler technology like MCDI that we've talked about. And I think this report sort of gave me the opportunity to sort of examine what are some of the field challenges, not about just the 10 centimeter prototype in the lab and how it's better than someone else's prototype, but what are real challenges in the field and what's really available? Because often academics like to say, oh, we're better than RO, RO is not good enough. But when you really look in the field, that's the only technology that's most widely available and adopted and most mature. So that was a revelation and sort of something hard to accept because often we write about how it's not good enough. Um, but, you know, I think it was an excellent experience for us as academics to sort of step out our comfort zone and learn about what is and isn't field ready and how that helps us come back and think about our own research and technologies going forward. Well, that all sounds really interesting. And it sounds like we have a long way to go, but good progress has been made so far. I just want to say thanks to everybody who joined us today and thanks to our listeners. For those of you who are interested in the report, it will be available in the Oxfam Policy and Practice next week. In the meantime, though, you can find a short summary available on this page. Thank you.